If you have your Bible handy still, let's look in Luke chapter 17. We're going to look at one verse once again to read before we have a word of prayer. And then we will look into God's word today. So Luke chapter 17, let's look towards the end. It's actually when we come to that very last verse that we find the question that the disciples ask. It says here, verse 37, And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. That's rather an interesting verse, isn't it? So we'll be taking time to ponder that just a little bit in the message today, as well as the broader uh, context that leads up to it, where we'll find the message for today. First, though, let's pray. I think that's always a, a good idea. Father, thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for all that you've done for us in this past week. Lord, we thank you for the people of God and the way they are there to be an encouragement, the one to the other. So we pray that you'll keep us faithful in our prayers, especially for those that have stricken health, those that can't be with us, those that are traveling. Thank you for Journey's mercies you've given this past week to people who are traveling. And uh, Lord, we're just grateful that you have brought each uh, who is here today out to the service. And uh, Father, we're just always uh, jealous that the kingdom of God may be advanced, that God will be glorified. And uh, we think especially now of, of the Word of God here and also, Lord, uh, any who are uh, back in the uh, other parts of the building with Junior Church. Um, we just pray, Father, you will uh, cause that the Word of the Lord will be glorified and have free course in our midst. And, Lord, uh, we know uh, everyone comes to, today to church with all kinds of concerns, burdens, things we could be thinking about should we allow ourselves to, but we know, Lord, that your desire for us now is to meet with you and hear from you, and I pray you'll just give us a special um, ability and desire to uh, shut out all those other things that maybe we're going to be doing this afternoon or that will come up this week and help us to listen in, and I pray, Lord, that you'll help me to bring today's message with the power and presence of your Spirit. I pray that you will uh, cleanse and forgive me of sin and I pray that uh, you will help me, Lord, seeing as how you promise I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And we'll pray these things now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Luke chapter 17, verse 37. Where, Lord? Not too many words in that question, are there? Where, Lord? It's kind of an interesting thing. Here's another question that we find as we move along with our series uh, they asked him this, different questions that people asked of Jesus. This is another one, obviously, is being asked by the disciples. You go back right to the very beginning of our reading, verse number 22, and you find this here, and he said unto his disciples. So in the prior verses, there's a little bit of uh, an interlude with the Pharisees, but right now uh, the Lord seems to be addressing and giving teaching to his disciples. And as the disciples listen in on this teaching, they come up with this question, Where, Lord? It's kind of interesting that this is recorded for us, this particular question that the disciples asked. This is recorded only in Luke's gospel. Now, you notice the answer Jesus gives kind of turns out to be a, a bit of a cryptic type of a statement, a proverb, if you will. And he says this in answer, and he said unto them, wheresoever the eagle is, thither will the, uh, wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. I bring this up now simply to point out for uh, completeness uh, and accuracy's sake, that we do find that uh, spoken on the lips of our Lord in one other place. So over, if you were to turn to Matthew 24, we don't, I don't think we need to do this, but this is kind of an analogous place where Jesus is talking a lot about future things. We know it as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. 
What's interesting, though, there, when you look at that context, even though Jesus does utter this cryptic proverb there as well, he doesn't seem to be doing it. The, the, the context of it seems to be different. The occasion seems to be different. He doesn't do it in response to a question that the apostles ask or the disciples ask. He simply utters it in conjunction with what he's teaching. So um, we're going to be looking at this this morning. Now, I find it very interesting. If you're, if you're trying to unravel this, and we're not going to spend a lot of time with this, but I think whether you read this in Matthew 24, 28, where this is the place where it occurs in the Olivet Discourse, or whether you read it here in Luke 17, 37, uh, many times we read this and we're not altogether clear exactly what does that mean. And that's really kind of important for us because what we're trying to do is see how the Lord answered the question so it's perfectly natural for us to ask. I suspect the disciples knew it. It probably was something that was in current coinage with them, not so much a proverb that we know or use today. You can actually find a verse in the book of Job that I think gives insight into the background of this. But essentially the idea is this. Where you have a, our, our translation here doesn't say carcass. Matthew says carcass. Our translation here just says body. So by this, we need to understand like a corpse or a dead body of some kind or another. Right now, this time of the year, the most of that that you're seeing is along the highways, and it's unfortunately, it's deer that are hit by cars. And every time I go by one of those things, especially if it's relatively recent, I think to myself, oh, what a waste. And then I think to myself, oh, I'm glad I didn't hit it. Not, we saw a car the other evening. We're coming back from State College, went over to see Jerry, and... There was a car there, and, and there, the front end was just cashed in on the front. Not, not, like it had, not like a bad car accident, but like somebody hit a deer head on. I thought, oh, man, oh, great day. You know, that's just trouble I don't need. But we think about that, and then, of course, um, sometimes the buzzards come, and sometimes it's the crows. I saw this morning on the way to church there were about three crows on one, and I, that to me, I guess that's God's way. He cleans things up when PennDOT doesn't. But in any case, um, this is kind of what this proverb is all about. So when you have a decaying, rotting body, the vultures, and, and, and see our translation again here, eagles, um, it's, it's a perfectly fine translation of the word, but the idea is also, uh, the word also applies to vultures, and that's really what you have going on here. And so what the Lord is saying is where you have the deadness of corruption, Take this in a spiritual sense now. Apply it in a spiritual sense. Where you have the deadness of corruption, judgment is drawn to that. These vultures come down. And this is what the Lord is saying, that judgment is always drawn, ultimately drawn, to where you have the deadness of rot, a spiritual decay and rot. That's what the Lord is saying. But if you notice here, the Lord doesn't really... This is another one of those occasions, we've seen this recently where the Lord really doesn't answer their question probably how they think he's going to be answering it. Because I think they are thinking in terms of a location. Jesus is talking about this. If you back up and look at the context of this, he says, two people are in a bed and one is taken and one is left. Two women are grinding and one is taken and another is left. He says, two are in the field working and one is taken and the other is left. So it's only kind of natural that the disciples are kind of thinking to themselves, well, where? Which is exactly what they ask. But the reason the Lord, I think, does not answer the question precisely as maybe they think he should answer it is because 
it's not really the main point of his teaching. It's not really the deeper issue that underlies. And so often the Lord takes the opportunity to take the question, spin off of it, address the more underlying issue in question, which is maybe a little different than what they first thought. Let me try to illustrate this for you. Um, I think the Lord is wanting to talk about a destiny. That's really the greater that's really the greater issue here, whereas the disciples are thinking in terms of a location. I think the best way to capture it in your mind and, and not have all this just sort of go over your head, what I'm saying, is do you remember the story in the Old Testament? And God had told Elijah, this is going to be the day. And what happened to Elijah? He was caught up, right? And so uh, Elisha was going with him. Remember, Elisha had prayed for a double portion and and, and, and he said, only if you see me when I go up. And so you remember how that kind of unfolded? They went from one city to another city, and it's like Elijah was putting him to the test. You know, it was like, like ah, you don't need to come. And he, and he persisted. He really wanted to be there when this occasion happened. Well, ultimately, they crossed the Jordan River, and Elijah was, in fact, caught up. And Elisha was there and saw, and Elijah's mantle dropped. You remember this story in the Old Testament. But do you remember what happened afterwards? So Elijah goes back, and the sons of the prophets are there. And I always think to myself, okay, <laughs> how many times have I had my interaction with the sons of the prophets? And they say to Elijah, hey, we better send out a search party. Remember that? I mean, that's a vernacular way of putting it. But hey, we better send some people out and try to find him. The Spirit of God could have cast him down somewhere on a mountain or somewhere else. And Elisha kept trying to tell him, no, we don't need to do that. He's been caught up into the presence of the Lord. And they persisted and persisted until I think Elisha finally said, okay, we'll just let them see. And they sent people out. And you know what? They couldn't find him anywhere because they were thinking of a location. And it's not that heaven's not a place. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think that's the point here. The point here has to do with judgment. Jesus is not thinking in terms of a physical location on earth, that these people are going to be snatched away and set down somewhere over here. Jesus is thinking of a destination or a destiny. And that destiny is one of judgment. That's the whole thing that he's talking about here. By the way, we're not even into the message yet, but I should clarify, and maybe, maybe you don't need me to say this, but all of this business about two in the field and two grinding and two in the bed, one taken and one left, this has nothing to do with the rapture. The, the, the rapture is not even in view here, so don't, don't be thinking that. If you've read this before and you've kind of been confused by that, that, that maybe is why, because the rapture is not in, really in view. It's the second coming of Christ in glory when, in fact, judgment does happen. And, and that's the whole basis of all of this that he's talking about here. So what is the deeper question? The deeper question has to do more with why, really, than it does where. So think about this for a minute. How is it possible... That a whole generation, and, and when I, I say a whole generation, I, I, there are obvious exceptions. There are obviously saved people. But by and large, how is it that a whole generation, when there have been so many warnings, when there has been such, over the years, attention drawn to the fact that Jesus is coming, coming to the earth again, that he is going to return to the earth in glory, how is it that people, a whole generation almost, of people who are so unprepared, so as to be taken in sudden judgment at his return. And the Lord gives three answers to that, and he gives three illustrations to help explain those three answers, and that is what we're going to look at today because that's really 
what he says, it's, it's the underlying thought that he wants to drive to. It's a destination that's in view, and that destination is judgment. And the question is, how is it that so many people, in spite of so much preaching and so many warnings, how is it that people will be unprepared when the Lord returns and suddenly swept away in judgment? How is that possible? So let's talk about the first illustration, and the first illustration is the people of Noah's day. So we go back to verses 26 and 27. You look there in your Bible, and he says, as it was. So, so here's an example of this. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the day of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. A whole generation swept away in judgment in spite of the fact that Noah was there. Now, when you look at this at first, you think to yourself, okay, and you have to read carefully because otherwise you're going you know, to bog down with the, with the first thought that enters into this and not really get the, the real point of it. But you think to yourself at first, well, it sounds to me like he's just describing people going about the natural course of living. When you first see his description of the days of Noah, verse 27, they eat, they drink, they marry wives, and they're given in marriage. Nothing particularly wrong with that, right? Isn't, aren't those things just the activities of life as it tends to go on? That much is true, but we get our hint as to what the, the real problem is when he starts talking about Noah and the ark. Well, what do you know about Noah and the ark? Well, we know a few things. Maybe there's a lot we have curiosity and questions about, but that's really the first clue that we get. And you've often heard it said that Scripture is its own best interpreter, and that's true. So I'm going to ask you, what do you th- if you put your thinking cap on for a few moments, what do we really know about Noah, and what do we know about his generation? Well, one of the first things we know is, is that Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Did you ever think about that very much? Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So if we go over and read the entire verse, here's what it says. It says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Well, the whole idea of the ark tells us what Noah's message was, right? If we're thinking about what was Noah preaching, well, Noah was preaching about God's judgment that was going to come upon that generation because of of their wickedness. This verse in 2 Peter chapter uh, 2, verse 5 talks about the world of the ungodly. And we can certainly go back into Genesis chapter 6 and read a number of things about the violence that was in the earth and all the different things that characterized that generation. But the thing that I want to drive towards here is what happens in response to preaching. People either believe it or they don't believe it. People either, the word prophets people, because as the author of the Hebrews tells us, it's mixed with faith. Or it doesn't profit people because they reject it, which is largely what happened in the days of Noah. Any idea why you think people might have sort of made fun of Noah or why they didn't believe what he had to say? Well, almost certainly it had never rained before. Noah's building an ark and saying God is going to send a flood on the earth and bring judgment upon people, and it's going to rain. And people, I can imagine, just kind of thinking to themselves, hmm, hmm, <laughs> rain? Really? What's that? 
Let's look at a couple verses. Maybe you want to look at this. Maybe you just want to listen to me read them. But still, I, I, while this may not be 100%, I think that, that this, is, this is pretty much the conclusion that you're going to come to because the reference that we have to rain here in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 5, in other words, when it was in the garden, chapter 2 and verse 5 says that every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew for the Lord had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. So how did the plants grow and how did they get their moisture? Verse six explains, says, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Well, that's how it was in the beginning. We don't really find anything about rain again until you get to chapter seven and verse four. And if you read that verse, it says, for yet seven days, And I will cause it to rain upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. Well, so one can only imagine the attitude of people in Noah's day if it hadn't rained before, even if it had, the fact that Noah was talking about it's going to rain so hard, so long, so much that I'm going to need this big ark And this was Noah's message to people that judgment was coming and that God had provided a means for Noah and his family to escape that judgment through the ark. Did you notice there were no other takers other than the animals? Nobody believed. Nobody accepted his message. They didn't didn't believe what he was trying to say to them when he proclaimed that God's judgment was going to come in in, in terms of a flood. Here's something else to ponder. And again, this is where I'll have to kind of give you the best we can come up with. How long do you think it took Noah to build the ark? How long did it take Ken Ham? Well, I, you know, it's, it's something kind of to be amused, but in Noah's day, they were perfectly capable of building the ark, but they didn't necessarily have all of the, the tools and so forth like what we have today, all the power equipment. But the best answer that I can give you for this is probably somewhere in the vicinity of 60 to 70 years. And I don't want to go into all the technicalities. We'll, we'll spend a lot of time and, and not have time for the other things that we need to talk about today. But it has to do with the fact that we're told, verse 32 of chapter 5, that Noah was 500 years old and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So roughly in Noah's 500th year is when he started having his family, these three sons. Well, these three sons had to be old enough and live long enough that, that they were old enough to be married and have wives before... They went, in, went into the ark because when they went into the ark, it was Noah, his wife, so Mrs. Noah, and Mrs. Shem, and Mrs. Japheth, and Mrs. Ham. Those are the only ones that went in the ark. And so what was God's purpose in this? I mean, why did God give all of this notice? Why did, it, did all of this time go by 60 to 70 years? And every day, just think about this, every day that Noah goes out there and drives a nail, Now, by the way, you may be thinking it took so long just because only Noah and his three sons to work on it. You don't know that. I mean, really, I mean, if you're going to be downright honest, we don't know exactly. I mean, maybe Noah went out and hired some construction crews. Maybe it's a good way to have an opportunity to preach to them while they were on the job. They said, what are we building this thing for? Well, you know, it's flood coming. I don't know. We're not given those details. Who, who all was involved and how they accomplished this. But just think about it. Every day that people heard hammering or sawing, or whatever else that, that was going on in the building of this ark. Every day that they saw supplies coming in and all the different things that were needed, they were getting a message. 
Even if Noah wasn't talking, he was preaching. Every time they heard one of those hammers hit a nail, it was as if Noah was saying, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. And you know what? In the Bible, when we look at what God was trying to accomplish God was being long-suffering, and we're told this. We're told this not only in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, but we're told this in 1 Peter 3 and verse 20. Listen to this. Here's another commentary that Peter gives us on this. He says, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God in the days... Long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. Wow, think about that. Think about preaching for 60 or 70 years. I mean, you know, there's people like this in the Bible, uh, Jeremiah and others who preached in Isaiah, got very little response, and their ministry was difficult. But wow, Noah didn't have a single convert. At least he took his family. That's something to think about that. At least he took his family. Not a single convert, 60, 70 years of, of Noah being a preacher of righteousness. And why? What was the problem with this generation? What was the distinguishing feature of this generation? Unbelief. They mocked. They laughed. They scoffed. They refused to believe. And God's judgment came and was poured out upon them. They simply refused to believe that God would bring such a catastrophic judgment upon them, and they ignored the warnings of the truth of God's word. Do you think we're living in days like that today? I think so. A number of years ago, it was actually 1996, the date was February the 6th, the AP had a story about three teenagers that they were in the Tampa, Florida area. And they were out, you know, doing sometimes like teens will. They just out for a good time at night, thought it would be funny, wanted to make a prank or two. Here's what they did. They went around in, the, in some of the rural areas east of Tampa and pulled up 20 road signs, dug them out of the ground. One of them included a stop sign at a particularly dangerous intersection. I don't know whether they realized that at the time or not. The next day, three of these same teens' buddies were coming back from being at the bowling alley. And they went through that intersection. There was no stop sign, so they didn't stop. And their car went right into the path of an eight-ton truck. And they were all three killed immediately. Well, these boys were arrested, as you can only imagine. And a year later or so, when they stood before the judge in the courtroom in their orange jumpsuits, handcuffed, tears streaming down their face, thinking again about the horrible loss of their own friends through something that they thought was funny. They were sentenced to 15 years in prison. They thought it was funny, but it had tragic consequences. Noah was a signpost. Noah was a stop sign. 
People thought it was funny. People thought you could just drive with impunity. People thought you could just do what you want. You didn't have to believe that silly message. Who ever heard of a flood coming over the whole world? And they refused to believe. This is the first answer Jesus gives. It was like this in the days of Noah. Their distinguishing feature was unbelief. The second illustration he gives are the people of Sodom. And we may all think we know the answer to this, and probably we do, but let's look at what the Bible has to say as Jesus speaks, verse 28, Luke chapter 17. So likewise, as it was, so here's your second illustration, likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. So, so far, it, it leads into the illustration the same way. It just sounds like they were going through the normal functions of life. Really nothing wrong with any of those particular practices. But then we get our hint as to what the distinguishing feature of that generation was when we begin to read, but the same day, verse 29, that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and Look at this, same thing it says back two verses earlier, and destroyed them all. And Jesus says, even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. What was the distinguishing feature of the people of Sodom? Well, I think we think we know that, and I think we do. But I would give you the word wickedness for that, absolute wickedness. Now, you know, sometimes, and I, maybe you would do well to turn to this, um, let's look at the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, a moment. If you've ever read this verse before, you have to be sure you read the next verse, or otherwise you kind of get the wrong impression, because some people, I think, have read this verse and kind of tried to go away from our traditional understanding of what the real problem was, the thing that really drew the judgment of God as it did on, on the city of Sodom and the surrounding cities by looking at this verse and saying, ah, so there was more to it. Well, look at Ezekiel chapter 16, and we want verse 49. Take a look at that verse. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. But you've got to read the next verse. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. So some, some people have talked about the fact that, oh, well, it really wasn't so much the wickedness that was in that place. It was their laziness and their indolence and their lack of compassion and all of those things. Well, I'm telling you, those things are not good. But God didn't rain brimstone and fire down out of heaven because they were lazy. God used that judgment and rained fire and brimstone down upon them because they used that affluence and they used that to indulge themselves in all manner of wickedness and evil. And the Bible, you just cannot get away from the testimony of God's word that that's the reason that God brought this judgment upon them. Again, let's let Scripture be its own best interpreter. 2 Peter chapter 2. As I say, you just can't get away from this in the Bible. It says, and turning the cities, this is verse 6 of 2 Peter 2, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow. 
making them an example unto those that should live after, how's that next word? Ungodly. Or Jude is even more explicit. If we go over to Jude, just a few pages over. And notice Jude 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Did they have a signpost? Did they have any warnings that we can honestly say that they ignored other than just the fact that they were doing things that were contrary to nature and knew it? Yeah, they did. He might have been weak. He might not have been as decisive. He might not have had as clear-cut a testimony as what Noah did, but his name was Lot. And you know what? I mean, I can see how you might read the story and think to yourself, you know, I don't even know that Lot was saved until you get to the New Testament. And it blows that theory apart by telling us in 2 Peter chapter 5, or chapter 2 once again, let's look at verse 8 now, for that righteous man, it tells us right there, for that righteous man, Well, verse 7 says, And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation, which again is another confirmation of what their their sin was, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And even if we go back to Genesis chapter 18, I can read or show you a verse here. You can see Lot doing this, even if he wasn't maybe as decisive and strong as Abraham or uh, as Noah was. In Genesis chapter uh, 19, rather, sorry, look at verse 7. This is when they come to the door. This is when these men come to the door. I, I think you know that story. And what does he say to them? He, even then he tries to remonstrate with them. He says in verse 7, and I said, I pray, and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. And what did they say? Verse 9, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came in to sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now we will deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break down the door. Good thing the angels were there to keep them from being able to break the door down by smiting them with blindness. So, yes, they had a signpost. Yes, they had a preacher. He might not have been as strong and decisive as what Noah was in his generation, but he was there. He pleaded with them. But the decisive characteristic of that generation was wickedness or ungodliness, and specifically in the moral area that we're aware of. They ignored the testimony of God's servant, And Jesus said, Fire and brimstone came down from God out of heaven and destroyed them all. Second answer Jesus gives, how is it that a whole generation, how is it that a whole group of people, despite the warnings that they've had, 
can be swept away in sudden judgment by which they are taken in surprise. And it has to do with wickedness. It has to do with becoming so entangled, so ensnared, so engrossed with our own sins that we're just totally oblivious and become get to the place where we become just so hardened that we just have no ears to hear, no heart to listen to anything that God is trying to say. And someone has said that God's word and the preaching of God's word is so often, or the teachings of Christ specifically, are so often like a, a river that just sort of goes along quietly and not so much of any disturbance. It just goes along peacefully and quietly between its banks until suddenly it approaches the cataracts. Now, if you think about this, I'm not sure what experience you might have with this. Anybody here ever done any whitewater rafting or anything like that? I haven't and don't plan on it, at least not at this stage of the game. As for younger people, and <laughs> you can figure. But I have read about it. In fact, I have a book at home right now. It's fascinating. I've read it once. It probably deserves a second read, but it's called Death in the Grand Canyon. And what it does is it brings together the key ways in which people over the years have lost their lives in the Grand Canyon. Of course, dehydration is a key one. But, you know, you discover something reading that book about the Colorado River as it proceeds through there that it moves along and there have been so many people who thought that they could make it across. There have been so many people who thought that they could jump in. It looks so placid. It looks so calm. And there have been so many people who thought that they could swim to the other side and they'd be fine. And a lot of them don't make it. And it's because the current of the water is, is so strong and it's deceptive when you look at it. But you let it flow down further and you talk about strong as nothing. That word doesn't even get it. Once that water begins to approach where those rapids are, well, obviously what happens, and you've seen this before, it picks up speed, more speed, more speed, and you get caught in this, and there's no, there's no bringing yourself out of it or away from it. You better be prepared for it. You better be ready for it. You better know what you're doing because you're going to be sailing down through this thing, and there's going to be boulders here and boulders there and all sorts of things, and many people have lost their lives that way also. And someone has said the teachings of Christ are like this. And all of a sudden, Jesus, who gave the Beatitudes, is all of a sudden talking about a whole generation being caught away and facing sudden destruction and judgment from God. But our sins are a little bit like that river there. See, you get caught up in them, and the first thing you know, they sweep you away. Better not to enter the water. And the third thing, we have just time, I think, to do this, are the people at Christ's return. Notice verse 31. This brings it right down to where the disciples were asking their question. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop with his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him not likewise return back but that the giveaway is to what the decisive characteristic of the generation that is on the earth when Christ returns the second time is this next word, remember Lot's wife. 
So once again, Jesus describes people who seem to be in the normal course of life. People are sleeping because, you know, when Jesus comes back the second time, it's going to be dark for some people. Nighttime somewhere on the earth, right? So there's two people sleeping. Um, don't read anything into the fact that it says men there. It's just masculine gender. And generally speaking, uh, in grammar, that would encompass, the male encompasses the female. So don't read into some abnormal thought into that. It's just two people are, two people are, you notice the men in, word men in italics there. Two, two people are asleep and one's taken, one isn't. And two women are grinding, and one's taken, one isn't. But what's wrong with sleeping? What's wrong with grinding? What's wrong with working in the field? Nothing. Except to you remember Lot's wife. And you see what Jesus is exhorting here. A fellow is up on the flat top of a house, and as if, it's if, as if he sees the approaching armies coming. But... He just says, oh, it'll only take a moment. And he wants to rush back downstairs and pack a bag that's got his most valuable things in it. And the first thing you know, he's lost that moment he had, that one opportunity he had to escape. He's lost it. Or Jesus gives another thought here. He says, what about this? In that day, two shall be on a housetop, which I just mentioned. Let him not come down. Or he that is in the field. So here's a guy who's out in the field and he's working. And, I don't know, he, maybe he sees fire coming. And he thinks, oh, I've got time. I'll dash home and I'll get a bag with my most valued possessions and I'll have time to get away. And, no, the wind, the wind and the fire are friends, you know. The fire gets to burning and the wind says, I'll help you. And the wind propels that fire and in his attempt and in that wasted time when he had that one moment that he could have escaped, in that wasted time he's overtaken with those flames and perishes. Jesus said that's the way Lot's wife was. Even as her feet took her Forcibly, perhaps, away from Sodom, her heart never left. Her feet were on the road out of Sodom, but her heart never left Sodom. And what is this? This is descriptive of the worldliness of people. It was her undoing, just as it will be the undoing for many people who are so caught up in their lifestyle, who are so caught up in their wealth, who are so caught up in everything that pertains to this world. It's a little bit like the man that Jesus told about in the parable, and he called him the rich what? The rich fool. And he had all this bumper crop, and he said, oh, what am I going to do now? The barns I've got won't hold all this stuff. I know what I'll do. I'll pull those down and build bigger. And God said, Thou fool, this night shall be required of thee. And then who shall all those things be? People who live for materialism, people who live for this world, people who are so caught up that they can't pay any attention and don't have any desire to pay any attention to spiritual things. And that's how it is that this happens. Paul warns us to not be entangled 
in the affairs of this life that we may please him who has called us to be a soldier. And it is so easy for it to happen. We can see it in our own lives. But I want to tell you a little story about a song. We're going to actually use the song in a, in a few moments when we close. But the song is one of Daniel Whittle's songs, Have You Any Room for Jesus? Here's the story. And you can find this story in a book entitled The Romance of Sacred Song, written by a name by the man of David Beatty. He tells a story. So many of these songs have been used by God so wonderfully. And this is the story he says. This happened probably 100 years ago. It was in the early part of the 19th century or the 20th century. And two men had gone out that day to fly birds, which sounds a little different to us. What do you go out to fly birds? But these were pigeons. And it was uh, it's like horse racing. It was, you know, to see which bird would win the race in the homing pigeons type of a thing. And they, so these, these two guys, they were into this, you know, and they'd gotten their birds and they were going to fly them. When all of a sudden they passed by a, a, a group of people holding a street meeting. And they were out there preaching and they were singing. And what were they singing? They got to the second stanza of this song. Room for pleasure, room for business, but for Christ the crucified, not a place that he can enter in the heart for which he died. And the one guy stopped. And he said to his friend, his name was Bill, his friend was Jack, and he, Bill said to Jack, he said, that is me. He said, that's room for pleasures, room for business, but no room for Christ. And he looked at Jack and he said, you go ahead if you want and fly the pigeons, but he said, I'm going home. Well, he went home, put the birds away, his wife was so surprised that he was back so quickly and by the obvious change that had come over his mood that when she heard where, what he was interested in and where he wanted to go, she went with him. And they went back to where these people were holding the street meeting. They found them at a small little chapel where they were continuing the service. They both sat down and listened to God's word that was given in that service and they both got saved. But I have to ask myself, wonder whatever happened to Jack. We're not looking down, folks. We're looking at us. We're looking at the very kinds of things that can happen if we don't guard our lives and keep our hearts with all diligence. You know, the things of this world can become so alluring and so powerful. So how is it that and, and really, if you want to think about it, we can sort of blend all of this together and say, how is it that when Jesus Christ returns the second time, so many people are going to be caught away in sudden judgment? And there's really three answers that he gives to this. One is unbelief. We have plenty of that today. One is wickedness. We have a lot of that today. And the other is worldliness, and we have a lot of that today also. What then is Jesus' warning, and what should our warning be? Judgment comes suddenly, often, and without warning. You know, it isn't just Jesus' second return this, 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 this way. Think about the earlier story that I told you about the boys who went through the intersection. You think they had any idea they were going to lose their life? No. 
car accidents. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And so often the events of life happen so suddenly and so quickly. A heart attack comes. An automobile accident happens. A natural disaster occurs. And of course, the coming of Christ will be the same way. Sudden. And the opportunities then are gone. I think you and I need to be about like a six-year-old boy I want to tell you about in closing. His name was Brevin Hunter. Now, he was doing what lots of six-year-olds are doing now. He was in, their home was a duplex, and he was sitting there, and he was at his game console playing a, a game. All of a sudden, he heard the warning siren go off. And he went and got his mom, and he said, Mom, he said, we need to get to the basement. He said, the warning siren went off. Well, his mom heard the siren go off, too, and she looked outside, and the sky seemed to be clear, and she kind of thought to herself, well, maybe it's a false alarm, or maybe it's just a drill. But the boy was insistent. He just kept saying, and so she went and got his father, and more to placate the boy than anything else, they grabbed a futon and went down to the basement and sort of set up shop. Within just a few moments' time, a tornado came through that place. It destroyed their duplex. But that boy's action saved his family. And I think about what our role is today, ladies and gentlemen, and so often it says to snatch a brand, as it were, from the burning. We're living in a day that's characterized by unbelief, worldliness, and wickedness, but there are still people being saved. And it may not be easy to give God's message and be rebuffed as they rebuffed Noah. It may not be easy sometimes to look around and see people so steeped in their worldliness and steeped in their ungodly lifestyles until we recognize that there go I, but for the grace of God. And it's exactly what Jude says, and of some have compassion, making a difference. Let's just keep giving as God gives us the opportunity, the message. Let's try to find people that God will send us to to witness. Who knows, some may be saved. Because one thing's for sure, the Lord is coming back. And when he comes back, it will be sudden and judgment will come. O oh, Father in heaven,